0: Well, if we follow the advice of Ed Welch in that clip, then as we continue to work toward the creation of our counseling center, we're going to need to stock it with duct tape and machetes (laughs) and tasers, because we can be sure that one of the issues we will be dealing with as counselees come to us for help will be this issue of anger. It's not every Sunday that the subject of the sermon applies directly to everyone, especially in a series like the one we're in the biblical home where we're taking some time to look at individual roles in the family like pastor Mike did a few weeks ago in his message on the biblical husband or as we address specific issues like parenting that relate to a portion of our church family because of the current stage of their life but that's a stage that for some is long past and for others yet to come. It's not every Sunday that the subject of the sermon applies to everyone, but guess what? It's going to happen this Sunday because the topic at hand this morning is something that we all experience, something that we all deal with, something that we all know about, something that's present in every single human being who has a pulse and who's drawing breath, and that is anger. So let me ask you right off the bat: do you know anything at all about anger? <laughs> Tom Rayner has written a brief work titled Leading a Post-COVID Church. Now I'm sure when he wrote that he envisioned what many of us envisioned, that after a long and irritating ride on this COVID wave, it would eventually crash and life would come back to something close to normal. But that has not happened. That's not the case. That's prompted British writer Daniel Strange to pen maybe the greatest understatement I've read in a while. He says, there seems to be a waft of disappointment in the air at the moment. Oh, just a waft. A lot of us are frustrated. A lot of us are milling around here at wit's end. And maybe you've even noticed, bless you, you've even noticed this in yourself, a shorter fuse, a cynical view Or what Rayner observes as an increasing orneriness among church members who are weary, who are confused, who are fearful, who miss their friends, who miss doing what they're used to doing the way they used to do it. People are becoming ornery. Maybe you're becoming ornery. To be ornery is to be bad-tempered and combative. It's really living with a low-grade, pervasive feeling of anger. So today, and Lord willing next week, we're going to spend some time on this issue of sinful anger. And I have to use a qualifier, sinful anger, because obviously not all anger is sinful. Sometimes anger is good, and sometimes anger has a purpose. Not all anger is bad. It's not all sinful or else the Apostle Paul wouldn't have to give us this instruction, be angry and do not sin. It's possible to be angry and not blow it. It's possible to be angry and not act out. There is such a thing as a righteous anger and there is a place for it. And on occasion, you and I will experience a hint of that same sort of anger expressed by Jesus when he was in this world from time to time, or or the anger, I think, that's felt by God daily as he surveys the injustices and the rebellion of his creation. There is a holy anger, a purely motivated, rightly discerned, proper response to wrong that is experienced by God, and from time to time it's experienced by us. Whenever we are angry by those things which make God's angry, God angry. But in truth, if we're honest, such righteous anger is rare. John Piper puts it this way, and speaking from experience, I agree with him. He says, we tend to get angrier over our slighted pride than over the marring of God's glory. We tend to get angrier over a minor inconvenience than a grievous injustice. And so it's possible for us to have righteous anger But that generally represents only a tiny sliver, a very small fraction of the anger that we experience. So for our purposes today, as I refer to anger, I'm speaking of the type that you and I are the most used to. I'm talking about sinful anger. So we're going to be asking and hopefully answering three basic questions this morning. What is anger? Where does it come from? And why is it a problem? And if you want to hear the conclusion and how we're going to overcome sinful anger, you have to come back next week. So, Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. But this week, we only really have time for these three questions. What is anger? Where does it come from? And why is it a problem? Father, as we settle ourselves now to hear uh, your word and your voice, we ask that you would help us to do exactly that and father that you would ring true in our hearts in our spirits in our minds with a clarity that is undeniable as you speak to us because you hold forth for us words of wisdom and words of life that we desperately need and we have a habit sometimes god of being defensive or turning deaf ears we thank you for your faithfulness we ask you to forgive us for that and Help us to open up ourselves completely to what it is you want to say to us this morning. Through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So what is anger? The dictionary definition of anger is that of a strong feeling of displeasure aroused by a sense of justice that provokes action. Author and biblical counselor David Paulison writes, more than a problem to be solved Anger is a complex human response to things we perceive as wrong in a complex world. Lou Priolo describes anger as an emotion God gives us for the purpose of destroying something. And by that, he doesn't mean the object you happen to have in your hand when you're having your angry fit. Anger is a response. It does not automatically lead to sin, but in truth, it often does because it spirals into thoughts and attitudes and words and deeds that fall short of God's best. Anger is a response, but where does it come from? Well, if you ask a person who's prone to anger, she or he will likely answer this question by saying, or at least believing, that anger comes from the idiots that they have to put up with every day. We call that projection and denial, right? The act of denying the existence of something inside of ourselves and attributing it to others. I wouldn't be so ticked off if you weren't such a moron. (laughs) We understand that. We actually believe that from time to time. But that is not what the Bible teaches us, is it? No. In reality, the anger that we experience is not someone else's fault. It doesn't come from someone else, it comes from us. It comes from within our hearts. Jesus said this, it's recorded in Mark 7, 21 to 23, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these things come from within and they defile A person. It all comes from inside. When we are sinfully angry, that is, when we don't control our anger, when we behave in an ungodly manner in our anger, it's simply an outward reaction that betrays an inward reality. Listen, when I'm out of order behaviorally, it's because I'm out of order spiritually. When I'm out of order behaviorally, it's because I'm out of order spiritually. And the Bible in the book of James puts a finer edge on this for us. He, he points to the source of our conflicts and our quarrels, the problems that we have. And he says, it's your passions. It's your strong desires. The King James Version, I believe, says lust. The, the word means strong feelings. That's the problem. Or we might simplify it even more and say the, the, the origin of our anger and our conflict lies within us in our wants, in our expectations. Much of our sinful anger is a result of us not getting what we want when we want it. Much of our sinful anger is a result of not getting what we want when we want it. Do you agree with that? Doesn't sound too flattering, does it? When you say it out loud, it's like, ugh, that sounds bad but it's the truth. We don't want to hear it out loud because it makes us seem like babies. We don't want to be babies, but sometimes we act like babies in our anger. Liz and I have been watching this show on, I I don't even know how she gets to it, actually. I can't tell you what we're watching it on. Uh, It's all magic to me. Honey, can you turn on that show? That'd be great. No, I can't. Okay, then I'll read. Uh, The Great British Menu. I don't know if anybody has, has watched that. Oh, some of you foodies really ought to t- tune in. Anyway, there's a great show about these chefs that are competing with one another in order to make their way to a banquet and in order to cook at a big banquet for notable folks, whether it's Olympic athletes or, or sometimes politicians. or There's all kinds. Every year they're trying to get through to the banquet. So the chefs compete And they are judged by other chefs. And the the chef judge is usually a a better-known chef. Like, they say this chef has one Michelin star or three Michelin stars. I do not know what that means. For me, Michelin is a tire. (laughs) But I think it means something to to the chef, to the cooking world. Anyway... So the chefs are doing their best to present these dishes, and they are judged by other chefs. In this one particular episode, a chef was being very creative. You've noticed that about chefs. Sometimes they just like to exercise their creativity and put different combinations together and maybe surprise you, give you something you've never seen or heard or would never dream of eating. Anyway, it was the fish course. Here these guys do, do a beginning round, a fish course, a main course, and a dessert course. They all compete in these four courses, so it's the fish course. And this creative chef decides he's not going to do any fish in the fish course, which seems a little odd to me, too. He put his creativity on the plate, and he got it in front of the judge, and the judge was not impressed. This is a fish course. Therefore, Johnny, your score out of ten possible points is two. I think that's because he actually gave him a plate. <laughs> so Johnny, being creative, perhaps a little narcissistic, was quite upset that his, sco- his dish did not score well, took off his apron, and promptly stomped off the set, while the judge is saying, Johnny, now Johnny, Johnny, and, jo- and there goes Johnny. He came back the next day. He had quit the show. He wasn't going to do that anymore, but he came back to apologize to his his fellow chefs. He realized he had acted badly, and he wanted to apologize to the viewing audience, really, that had witnessed his meltdown, and he explained it. He was disappointed in the score that he got, and so he overreacted in anger. He said, and I became quite childish, and this is what he said, and the toys went out the pram. It's one of the fun things about watching the show is the way people phrase things, and the toys went out the pram. And I'm thinking, I get this picture of this little kid who in anger is just chucking the toys out of the carriage, you know? That's what he did in anger. That's what we do sometimes in anger. We don't want to think that we're babies, but sometimes we act like babies, and the toys go out the pram. Paul Tripp has written a book called Awe, Why It Matters to Everything We Think, Say, and Do. And he says, think of how little of your anger in the past couple months had anything at all to do with the kingdom of God. You're not generally angry because things are in the way of God and his kingdom purposes. You're angry because something or someone has gotten in the way of something you crave, something you think you will inspire contentment, satisfaction, or happiness in you. Your heart is desperate to be inspired, and you get mad when your pursuits are blocked. My will, what I want, when I want it, is absolutely key to understanding and getting a handle on my anger. Because my anger, my will, reveals my love. In an odd twist, I think probably you wouldn't have thought of it this way at first, but you know anger comes from love. I'm not saying a good love or an ordered love. I'm just saying anger comes from love because it's our response when someone or something poses a threat to someone or something that we love. So when Jesus, for instance, cleanses the temple, he goes into the temple area and he's angry That what's supposed to have been a house of prayer for all nations has become a profit center, has become a marketplace. And maybe you know it or maybe you don't, but the place where the market was set up, where the money changes were set, was the court of the Gentiles. How on earth can his house be a house of prayer for all the nations if the one place where the other nations are allowed to be to find access to God is crowded out with money grubbers. Jesus is angry, and he's right to drive them out of there. His anger is moral. It flows from his love. He loves his father, and he loves the people that his father wants to have access to him. And that access was being denied. That's a righteous anger, a righteous indignation. But usually, though, for you and I, when we become angry, our loves are not so noble. Someone disrespects me and I love the idea of being respected so I retaliate. Someone cuts in front of me at the ice cream stand and I love ice cream and I have a sense of fairness and that's not fair so I seethe inside and I let it disrupt my day. True story. (laughs) Liz, Liz corrected me after the last service. She goes, honey, I don't think you just seethed inside. I said, <laughs> I said, I love ice cream. She said, I can help who's next. True story. Still not over it. I'm a work in progress. Sancti- sanctification. Someone tells me no when I desperately want to hear yes. Someone makes me late and I want to be on time. A family member behaves badly and I worry about the reputation of my family more than the family member and I lash out with harsh words. I can't do what I used to do and I'm finding that my sense of worth is tied up to my productivity. My vacation plans are messed up by COVID. Another true story. The line at Dunkin' Donuts is huge. It takes way too long to get a cup of coffee these days. What I get angry about is directly tied to what I love, what I want, when I want it. So think about that. The next time that you you're headed for an outburst. The next time you feel your blood pressure rising, your face getting red, your your teeth clenching, your fists clenching, think about that. And understand that anger can be, if you let it, a warning flag. It can be a caution sign that says, slow down, slow down, slow down. And ask yourself in that moment, what do I love so much that I'm getting angry about right now? What do I love so much that I'm getting angry about right now? And then, is it the right love? Is it a proper love? Is it an ordered love? Is it a godly love? Is it the right want? Is it the want that God wants me to want? Or the one that just comes so easy and naturally? Does it have anything to do at all with the kingdom of God? And with his righteousness. We're prone to anger when we can't have what we want. But is that a problem? And if it is a problem, why is it a problem? Because some people are known to say, and maybe you're among them, okay, I get angry, I pitch a fit, I get it out of my system, and I feel better. What's the problem? That's my way of working through it. What's the problem? Why is anger a problem? Well, what does the Bible say? Let's begin with this from James chapter 1, verse 20. The wrath of man, the anger of man, does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger is a problem because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, we are commanded by Jesus to seek first his kingdom, right? And his righteousness. So we know from Scripture That our anger runs contrary to this pursuit of seeking the kingdom of God and seeking the righteousness of God. In fact, our anger usually means that something else, something other than God, is ruling and reigning. That's what the kingdom means. Seek the kingdom is to seek the rule of God, to seek the reign of God. And when I'm really angry, that means that something probably has commandeered my heart. And my mind. And it's steering me not toward the God I love and the God who loves me. But it's steering me away from him. And away from the things that he wants me to do. And the person that he wants me to be. That anger, when I express it, can can be a barrier to my reflection, which I'm supposed to do as a believer... On the goodness of God, on the grace of God, on the mercy of God, on the patience of God, on the rightness of God, and on and on and on. It gets in the way. If we indulge anger, if we let ourselves stew in it, if we let it take control of who we are, if we allow it to to drive our words and our thoughts and our, our deeds, then we run this risk of missing completely what God is trying to accomplish in us. We're so angry that we cannot take hold of what God is trying to do in us and through us in this difficult situation, right? We look at the trials and the tests and irritations and annoyances, and we think as good Americans would, we just need to get rid of these things. We just need to make create a perfect existence, but that's not the scriptural way. The Bible tells us that God is using these things to refine our character. He's using these things to produce steadfast in us. He's using this tough stuff to make us more like Jesus. That's what's happening. But when we just give in to anger because it makes us so mad. I wanted this and I didn't get it. I thought it ought to have gone that way and it didn't. We miss it. I suspect you're familiar with the Old Testament character Jonah in the little book of Jonah. And in that book, God twice asks his prophet the same question. Initially, God asks in response to Jonah's anger over the repentance and salvation of Nineveh. And then, when Jonah is exceedingly displeased, he asks him again about a a plant that had come up and had gone away you know the story I think I don't have to tell you the story but what is the question that God asks have you any right to be angry Jonah you're mad at me because I'm showing compassion to a bunch of people that you don't like do you have a right to be angry you're mad at me because I appointed a plant to come and give you shade and then I appointed a worm to come and eat it because I'm showing you that I'm in control. Do you have a right to be angry? The first time that God asked Jonah this, it appears from the text that Jonah didn't even answer the question. He just left town. God asks good questions, doesn't he? And he's sulking outside the city, right? And he's waiting for the destruction that that he hoped would come, but it never does. That's when the plant sprouts up and gives him shade and he finds relief and then the plant goes away and he's angry and God asks him that second time, do you have a right to be angry about the vine or I think the King James, doest thou well to be angry? Doest thou well to be angry? And Jonah said, what does Jonah say? He said, yeah I do. He actually said to God, yes I have a right to be angry and I'm angry enough to die. The Hebrew word there angry it comes from a root word that means to grow warm, to blaze up, to burn hot Jonah's hot he's angry and his anger is absolutely controlling him controlling what he will and will not allow into his mind his anger has the best of him and you know how we know that because the worst of him is coming out and when anger gets the best of you the worst of you comes out In his anger, Jonah ignores God's question because he's seeing red. Is it possible today you have some upset in your life and you're very angry about it and yet God is trying to penetrate that with a question or two? But you don't want to hear it. You want to say, God, I have every right to feel how I feel. And God is just asking you gently, do you think so? God is trying to show Jonah the liberating truth of his immense mercy and grace and goodness, that he is a God who has every right to destroy sinners, but he goes after them. And he wants them saved, and he wants them to repent. He's trying to show Jonah something about himself. But Jonah won't have it. The wrath of man does not produce. In fact, he gets in the way of the righteousness of, of God. Jonah's anger shuts him off to what God is trying to teach him. That's what anger does. Second, anger is a problem because it harms people God loves. It's a problem because it harms people that God loves. Have you murdered anyone lately? Everybody know on that? <laughs> I'm not asking if you felt like murdering anybody lately. I'm asking if you have, because of course you haven't. But have you called anyone a fool lately? And meant it? Because Jesus says this in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus does not equate being angry with our brother with murder in order to make murder more acceptable or less offensive or more common. He does so to elevate the seriousness of anger. It is a serious thing. It's not to be shrugged off. It's not to be simply accepted as the way it is. And that's what you hear from those who are prone to anger. Well, that's just how I am. Guess what? Jesus came so you don't have to be how you are. That's what this is about. <laughs> Let's not go down that road and understand as a culture, beloved, that the more we accommodate anger and the more it becomes commonplace, the more we are not offended by somebody who is rude or disrespectful or malicious or mean, the easier it is for everybody to be that way and is still just as wrong. How can you judge a fellow image bearer of God? And call them a fool. When Jesus says that's murder, that's what he says, and he means it. Anger harms people. It harms people that God loves. Misdirected anger is destructive. When we are angry and we blow up, we hurt people. We scare people. We intimidate people. And sometimes that's, frankly, the goal. That's what domestic violence is. Anger and power and control. Jesus would call that murder. It harms people by the collateral damage that it inflicts and by the influence that it encourages. I recently read, anger not only reveals the individual heart, it also infects the crowd. So it isn't just what's inside of me, it's the fact that it's infecting other people. And we see that in scripture, in in this riot described in Acts chapter 19 against the preaching of Paul. Luke tells us about the rioters. He says, Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. They had come together to be disruptive and to riot, and they were angry, but the reality is they didn't even know why because somebody's anger infected the crowd. Anger often begets anger. And that's a problem because it harms people. It harms people that God loves, including the person who's given to anger. Jonathan Parnell wrote an article recently, What Our Anger Is Telling Us. He says, New new studies argue that regular feelings of anger increase the likelihood for heart disease, and that within two hours of an outburst, the chances of a heart attack or stroke skyrocket, which means all you angry folks better watch out. It's a dangerous foible. (laughs) Wow, it's true. Like, it can literally be dangerous to the person who gives full vent to it. It also carries other consequences, a more (laughs) subtle danger, to those who suppress it. And I think that's where a lot of Christians fall in. Mostly with the suppressing piece, because we we have sort of been brought up and trained to be kind and to be nice, and then we have this emotion of anger, and we don't really have a good category for it, and so we just say, "Well, uh, no, it, it's fine," but if it's not fine, you can't say fine. If it's not fine, don't say it's fine. The Bible says that you shouldn't sin with your anger, but it also tells you not to lie. Right? That's a lie. When you tell someone it's fine, it's not fine. That's lying. That's not polite. That's what people say. I'm just being polite. No, you're lying. You're sinning. You have an opportunity to work it out. Work it out. But don't make it up. Don't say, no, it's all good. Really, Pat? It's fine. It's not fine. If it's not fine, it's not fine. Say so. You you put that down in there, and you, you have a fine interaction with this one, and a fine interaction with that one, and a fine interaction with somebody else, and all these fine interactions, and you just eat them. What kind of a person do you think that's going to make you over time? The Bible cautions us about this. It says, don't see, see to it. Make sure that no root of bitterness is allowed to take hold. Because when that thing grows up, it says it's going to defile many. It's not just going to hurt you. It very often is going to, it's going to lead you into this thing that we culturally call depression. Depression. The Bible would call sadness or sorrow or a downcast soul, but it's not going to just hurt you. It's going to hurt people around you. It's going to defile many. So anger gets in the way of producing the righteousness of God in us. It harms people that God loves. And lastly, sinful anger is a problem because it's enslaving. It's enslaving. The habit of blowing up, acting out, raising your voice, swearing throwing things brooding holding someone hostage with your behavior is just that it's a habit and it's not a healthy one the scripture teaches whenever we continually give ourselves over to any particular sin we are slaves to that sin right that's the truth of addiction right we don't own that it owns us for the time period that's the truth with lust, with greed, with pride, with anger. Whenever we give ourselves over to any particular sin, we become a slave to that sin. Jesus says this, John 8:34. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's why it's so hard. Sometimes they come out from under sin. 2 Peter 2.19 says, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Now, what's the problem with being enslaved to sin for believers? It's this. We belong to God. And we are to be slaves to no one and no thing else. Nothing should master us but him. Right? Right? He is our master. He is our Lord. Nothing should master us but him. We should not be owned by anything except Jesus. That's the problem. Sin is ensnaring. Sin is enslaving. And we don't want to be slaves to sin. And that is, by the way, not to say that we're going to come out from under this really easy or that we're not going to have to fight or we're not going to have to battle around the whole thing because that's a misnomer. People think, okay, i become a Christian and now my life is going to be all right. I'm not going to make those same mistakes. I'm not going to have those tendencies, right? No. Why is Paul saying this in Ephesians chapter 4? Why is he telling Christians to behave like Christians? Because we have to be reminded and we have to be told because we're always fighting the former manner of life. To have our minds renewed and put on a new self. So no, it isn't going to be easy. But it's a battle that we have to fight. We're going to struggle with our imperfections. We're going to struggle with our failures. We're going to perhaps struggle today, some of you, with this proclivity to anger. But you know this. Don't just give in to it. Don't just shrug your shoulders and say, that's the way I am. Jesus died so you can be different than the way that you are. Do you believe that? He has overcome, take heart, I have overcome the world. I can overcome your sin because I've overcome the world. That's the reality, that's the hope of the gospel, that's the reality of what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ, and so please, beloved, if you struggle with anger, and I don't care if you struggle with anger for 50 years, and you say, that's just the way I am, no, fight it, fight it, try to, try to, come out from under it. Surrender it to God. Do not be enslaved by it. Our story has to reflect more this declaration of the former slave trader turned preacher and hymn writer John Newton than somebody who just lays down and accepts sin. John Newton said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still... I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, you can be what God wants you to be. By the power of the Spirit. Because the Christian life, the new life, the life of God in us is seen in many ways. And we have been saved to broadcast that. And it is seen in how we manage and how we express ourselves. Even when we're angry. So, when it comes to anger, beloved, who's in control? Father, we thank you and we praise you for the wisdom of your word and the hope that it brings. We confess our failings and our shortcomings, God. And we look to you and seek your power to help us to overcome. To be true to the calling that you have called us to. To be true to the new creation that we are. Lord, be gracious to us. Help us to become gentle, peaceable, wonderful witnesses. We are recipients of your grace and mercy, and let us give that grace and mercy with liberality to others, and perhaps especially to those who we don't think deserve it. Let us love as we have been loved, we pray and ask in Christ's name. Amen.